Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as the September edition of Prospect hits the stands, we're discussing three theatres of war. No, it's nothing to do with North Korea. We're talking culture wars, the new battles being fought to define our society. Feminism is newly fired up over a row about BBC Pay, another chapter in its so-called fourth wave, which journalist Jessica Abrahams is here to discuss. Immigration, or rather the reaction against it, is widely said to define a divide between a metropolitan elite and the mass of the people. But Prospect's deputy editor Steve Bloomfield is going to tell us about one country where the seriously popular thing to do is to demand more newcomers. This is bipartisan. The Conservative Party are pro-immigration. And even last year, they were the ones who pushed for uh, more than a 1,000 Yazidi girls and women to come into the country. But before all of that, we'll turn to the institution that sits at the pinnacle of the British culture of class, namely the monarchy. The Sun's royal correspondent, Emily Andrews, is on the line to report on whispered fears inside the palace that Charles III's desire to do good could be the undoing of the British crown. We'll ask whether the prince will ever learn to keep his mouth shut. For 65 years, the Queen has kept a dignified silence through all the many political rails that have enveloped the nation since she was crowned. Her discretion has been important in preventing the monarchy becoming a political dividing line. A Republican culture has never set in here. But Emily... From what you've picked up, some very well-placed people seem to think that this could all change because of Charles's instinct to meddle. Absolutely, Tom. I think we are going to see a very interesting change in the British monarchy over the next 10 years. I obviously don't want to predict when our Queen is going to die, but obviously we have to remember that she is 91, she's a non-Nigerian, and although she's suffered very good health, the next monarch is in sight. And of course, you know, through the accession laws, that was, will be Charles. I expect, I've been told that he will, um, in all probability, take the name um, Charles III. It's totally down to him what his regnal name will be. But I think when he does accede to the throne, as I wrote in my piece, it will be a real crisis, crunch time for the monarchy because it's absolutely imperative that he gets the tone right from the start. As you said, for the last 65 years, his mother has, we know, has, has played a blinder. We know very little about her, really. And she has kept her politics of the small p very close to her chest. 
unlike her son, we know a lot about what he thinks and what his political views are. And it really is going to be very interesting to see if he can change from an opinionated Prince of Wales into a much more modified King Charles III. If he wanted to do that, um, would he really want to um, do one thing that you say he definitely will do, which is address Parliament and the nation, setting out his stall? Yes, I think the plans for the accession, which will happen when the Queen literally draws her last breath, the convention um, and, in fact, the act of succession set down in Parliament is, is that the heir to the throne, which is Charles, will immediately become monarch. And there are very detailed plans in place for her death and the accession of Charles. Those two very different aspects have to be married and have to walk together hand in hand in tandem. And so on the one hand, you'll have this, I, I anticipate, huge outpouring of public grief. The Queen is the, is the only monarch that most of us have ever known. She's incredibly popular, partly through her longevity, partly through her... Um, she has done a very, very good job, I would say. I think most people would agree. She is the kind of glue around which the country is kind of um, held together. And the other aspect is that there's, of course, the new king, and he has to. He's mourning a mother, but he's also got this massive constitutional role. And the uh, code name for her death is um, London Bridge. And when she dies, within 20, depending on Charles's in the world, he will address the UK and he'll go and speak to the House of Parliament. He'll also visit Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland over the coming days um, between the Queen's death and um, her funeral. And he will be setting out his stall. He will be telling all of us mm. what kind of monarch he is going to be. So could you just remind us of, um, obviously we don't know what's going to be in that speech, um, it'd be worse a lot no. if we did, but no, could you absolutely. remind us of some of the, very briefly, some of the enthusiasm, some of the subjects that he has gone in for as Prince? Well, I think for those people who follow freedom of information requests, or the machinations of government will be familiar with um, Charles's so-called black spider letters, so-called because of his notoriously illegible scrawls. The Guardian, in fact, battled for a long time um, through FOI to get them released. And some of these letters written to uh, MPs, written to the Prime Minister, written to department heads of agriculture, health, etc., have been released. They range from climate change to hospital design to architecture to GM foods to farming methods. Sometimes they're green, sometimes they're pro-business, sometimes they're anti-business, sometimes they're just reactionary just for the sake of them. <laughs> it is quite difficult to pigeonhole Charles's political views. He's not necessarily Tory with a capital T. He's not necessarily liberal with a capital L. He really, his political views really do kind of span the political range. But he's definitely meddlesome. He's asking for politicians to do things. Steve, we need to put this in the context of a newly polarised political culture here because um, it's fair to say that Jeremy Corbyn barely disguises his Republican instincts. And so you could imagine, if King Charles were meddling in any way at all, this could really flare up. It would flare up whomever was Prime Minister, but particularly when you consider the possibility that Jeremy Corbyn could become Prime Minister and imagine King Charles III with Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn. Now, they're both of a certain age, they both have... You know, there, there may well be some things that they agree on. Um, both like plants. They both like plants, yes. But they both have a very, very different political outlook. 
As Emily says, Charles, when he was prince, had no problem with writing letters to ministers. And as we saw from the replies, often those replies were sort of trying to give the impression to the prince that, OK, I'm taking your view seriously, but I'm not sure if we'll do this. That's very different if the letter is coming from the king saying, mm. this is what I'd like. Absolutely. And also, let's not forget, there's a weekly audience that the king has with the prime minister. Now, who, whoever that prime minister is, it's quite hard to have to bat off someone's views week after week after week in a formal setting like this when they are technically above you in the pecking order. Jess, I mean, uh, do, you, do you think this um, is going to take hold, become a cultural issue? Do you think younger people in the poll we commissioned, for example, are very sceptical about Charles handing over? Many, many more of them would rather see William take over. Can you see it becoming part of the generational divide? Well, obviously, kind of younger generations tend to be more liberal or more left wing anyway. But I think um, my understanding is that even then, the, the Queen's remained quite popular with younger people. But probably because she's been uh, so quiet and so neutral, as Emily draws out in her, in her piece. So, you know, if there was a, a change of monarch and we have Charles, who's very outspoken, who's very meddlesome, as Emily has said, it probably could provoke a lot of that kind of latent um, anti-monarchy sentiment. We saw a flash of it, Emily, in uh, 1997, you say. You think that's the only real time where uh, like hostility on the part of the people has turned against the Windsors during her 65 years? Absolutely. I'm sure no one needs any prompting that 1997 was the death of Diana, Princess of Wales. And the end of August, obviously, is the 20th anniversary of her death. I think it's very, very interesting that despite those 20 years passing, Diana is more in the public consciousness than she's ever been before, obviously partly due to that anniversary. But in 97, the reaction of the House of Windsor to her death was catastrophic. I mean, Alistair Campbell in his memoirs talks about how he literally had to hold the hand of the Queen in dealing with it. I mean, of course, the politicians and Tony Blair, etc., would would obviously want to give that impression. But I think that that is probably pretty accurate. No one really could have foreseen that absolute national outpouring of grief, all those fields of flowers outside Kensington Palace. And really, her death and the perceived aloofness and hauteur of the royal family threatened to bring down the monarchy. People were saying, she was the princess of our hearts, she's dead, where is the queen who we want to hear from and, and, and pay tribute to this amazing woman? I think actually, if we, with the benefit of hindsight, if we take away that the actual person, the death of Princess Diana has actually helped in some ways the House of Windsor because if she was still alive, and obviously as a person it would be brilliant if she were, her sons miss her hugely, etc. But if she were still alive, she would be in this quasi state. She's not a royal, but she was a royal. She's half royal, but she would be a celebrity superstar. And I think that would cause real problems for her because she died. And by the way, I don't give any circle to this, all this conspiracy theories. People always ask me about that. It's one of the first things as a royal correspondent. They say, oh, well, you know, the royals must have bumped her off. No, she died because the driver was drunk and she wasn't wearing a seatbelt and they had a very nasty car accident. But I think obviously it meant that Charles could marry Camilla, which has brought him a lot of happiness. And the royals did weather that storm. But I think it's unfortunate for Charles because if things are going well 
then Diana won't be mentioned. But if things ever go awry, she will always be adduced to show how out of touch he was at the time. I mean, I don't know what he was thinking giving that interview to David Dimbleby. And he will be shown to be the complete opposite to her. She was the person who was hugging AIDS victims and walking through landmine fields, the absolute epitome of modern royalty. Um, and he will be, he in contrast, was the awkward yeah. adulterer who couldn't even tell the world that he loved his wife when they got engaged, his fiance, when he and Diana got engaged. I mean, I saw recently that footage of their engagement and the interviewer says, um, as Diana calls him, a rather awkward man from ITN, says, um, and are you in love? Diana giggles and says, of course we are. And Charles sort of looks and says, well, whatever love is. Yeah. So, so it's a reminder, Steve, all of this, that even by getting something purely symbolic, like a funeral, a bit wrong, a king can really mess up, a, a monarch can really mess up. But one of the interesting things about the British Constitution is it's all made up. There's a lot of royal prerogative powers still. There is, as you say, the weekly audience. Um, So the Queen could mess up on something symbolic. She wasn't going to mess up on anything else because she wasn't going to try and do anything else. But um, for those who, Emily says, in the palace are hoping that Charles can be restrained, the Constitution doesn't give them as much comfort as it might. It doesn't, no. Uh, Britain has an unwritten constitution, and despite the fact that, you know, there has been talk over the last 20 years about, you know, should we actually, at some stage, you know, perhaps try and write this down and work out what we want, we're still not at that stage. Um, I think there are two other interesting things about what happens after Charles becomes king, which could affect us here in the UK. The king of the United Kingdom doesn't just rule, so to speak, over the UK. The king is, well, the queen as it is right now, is still head of state in Australia, for example. Mm. And in Australia, there has been a a referendum in the past about whether there should be a republic. I would expect there'll be another one once Charles becomes king. The polls suggest that Australia might vote yes to become a republic. What does that do to Charles's standing here? Then there's the issue of the Commonwealth. The queen is the head of the Commonwealth, but the monarch isn't automatically the head of the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth has to decide that the new king becomes head again. If the Commonwealth doesn't decide that, what does that do to Charles's standing here in the UK? Okay, let's park for the moment the thought of um, King Charles III while we still can, and let's move instead to the turbulent struggles of fourth wave feminism. Jess, um, it's a publishing sensation, if nothing else. I think you reviewed about 10 books all at once for us. Um, but for the uninitiated who haven't been through all the, all the tomes, could you just tell us briefly what fourth wave feminism is and why it's different from waves one, two and three? Sure. Well, fourth wave feminism is um, connected to the previous waves in many ways, but it's also obviously distinct. After second wave feminism in the kind of 1990s and um, early 2000s. So second wave is? The second wave was kind of 1960s, 70s, into Jermaine the 80s. Greer. And... Jermaine Greer, the kind of all the stuff that happened along the civil rights movement and, and, the, and these kind of um, issues. The third wave feminism, this was in the 1990s, but it was a bit of a strange wave, um, mostly retreated into academia. And it's kind of a lot of gender theory. Uh, this is uh, Judith Butler as third, mm. third wave, for example. Um, and, and then you also have the kind of pop culture side of the third wave, the kind of girl power, Spice Girls kind of feminism, but wasn't explicitly seen as, they didn't see themselves as feminists at the time, uh, although they would have liked to talk about themselves as empowered women and so on. 
there was this kind of general consensus in the mainstream, at least during that time and then into the early 2000s, that kind of, we don't, we don't need feminism anymore. Equality has been achieved. Obviously, let's not forget the kind of great advances we've made over the last 120 years. So the vote, the Equal Pay Act and all of that. Exactly. So on paper, it all looks good. On paper, it looked good. And, you know, and even in practice, to a certain extent, men and women seem to be living similar lives. They seem to have access to the same freedoms and opportunities. But then with uh, the emergence of the internet, and this is the thing that's really driven Mm. the fourth wave, women started kind of connecting and starting to say, well, actually, we're supposed to be equal, but I've had this experience or, you know, this happened to me. And they start um, networking and talking to each other and sharing these experiences. And this is really where fourth wave feminism comes from, that they start to say, we're supposed to be equal. Everybody says that we're equal and yet we're still having all these experiences. We still seem to be having all these problems, things like um, discrimination in the workplace, um, sexual violence, issues like this. And so this is kind of, these are the kind of issues that fourth wave feminism is trying to, to grapple with. So that one book, you, one of the many books you review by Laura Bates, this everyday sexism project about a, a place where women can report on the harassment or just the way that they're demeaned, belittled and so on. And uh, it all came out, essentially. That's that's really at the, at the heart of where it came from. But in terms of the ideas, is there a coherent approach or is it a multiplicity of different approaches? It's very much a multiplicity. And again, this is where the internet's had quite a strong effect because it's sort of always been uh, an issue from the, from the very first wave of feminism that the women who were most able to make their voices heard were... Uh, privileged women, elite women, uh, women who were educated, who had uh, the money, the resources to make their voices heard, to publish books and so on. That's still a problem with the fourth wave, but the internet lowered the barriers to publication, which has brought more voices in. So you really have a much more diverse movement than ever before. And that's led to a kind of fragmentation of uh, of views and fragmentation of perspectives on where this movement should be going and, and what it's aiming for. But it's interesting that even so, those kind of fragmentations do map on to earlier streams of thought that have run through sort of second and third wave feminism as well. So kind of two main ones being kind of liberal capitalist feminism, things like Sheryl Sandberg's uh, Lean In is a kind of classic manifestation of that. It's um, pushing women forward within the structures of liberal capitalism and um, making mm. sure that they have access to the same um, opportunities and the, the same access to wealth that men have within those systems. And then you have the kind of more radical voices. And again, these also existed in the second wave, which kind of say, well, actually, those structures are unequal in themselves uh, and we need to break them down. And you zone in on this word choice, don't you? As, mm. as, as a, now, of course, a lot of feminists have often talked about choice, not only over abortion, but decisions for people to wear what they want, to work as they want. But I got the sense you're actually a bit sceptical of the notion. Yeah, I'd say if, if there's one thing that kind of unites contemporary feminism, it is this concept of choice, that feminism is all about women's ability to choose to do what they want and to do that without additional obstacles and additional judgment compared to what men have. And, and so that might be anything from kind of climbing to the top of company, becoming a CEO, to wearing the clothes and the, the makeup and the high heels that they, that they want to wear that make them feel confident and empowered. So what's wrong with that? <laughs> so what's wrong with that um, is the big question. I mean, choice is a good place to start, obviously. Uh, we're sort of not, not into forcing people to do anything. Mm. But um, it's nonetheless a concept that needs to be critiqued. Um, all our choices are shaped 
uh, in a certain way. We don't make choices in a vacuum. Um, they're shaped by our backgrounds, by our societies, by the expectations that we've been raised with. And that's a real problem because women are raised with different expectations than men. They're treated differently right from the word go. And so that shapes the kind of choices that they're making. Meaning they might, for example, end up in lower paying jobs apparently is a matter of free choice exactly this is a classic example that people will say well you know the gender pay gap is mainly caused by the fact that women tend to go into care roles or they go into the public sector they go into teaching things that tend to pay less whereas men are more likely to go into business finance economics law things that tend to be higher paid if we hang our hat on choice alone then there's nothing wrong with that but you might want to say well actually that still causes a problem and why are women making those choices now emily you're uniquely well qualified to comment on this at the moment in that you're you're on um, maternity leave I think I am when you think about the obstacles women face in going back to work and and the pay gap that sets in at, at that point do you think choice is the right frame to think about it do you think they're just denied choices or do you think it's a the cultural think, conditioning of how those choices are made oh uh, it's 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 very difficult I mean on a on a personal level um I work in a very male dominated industry I work for a tabloid newspaper Fleet Street has traditionally always been pretty male dominated it is pretty much still I would say with my other hat on I am the daughter of a professional woman she was the first female barrister in Birmingham she tells me some horror stories but she battled on and she did amazingly well and she had a very very has just finished a very successful career my children I have a son and a daughter I want to raise them both in an equal world and to tell both of them that they can be anything they want to be as indeed I was raised however and I and now I'm putting kind of my maternal hat on you can't beat biology (laughs) as my husband said Emily this is the one immovable object that you can't change as a woman I was the one who carried both my children and obviously had them and now at the moment I'm caring for my son I'm breastfeeding him and so it's really really difficult to juggle everything and I completely agree with what Jessica said that choice is conditioned I'm very very conscious when I dress both my children the colors that I'm choosing when I let my daughter watch the occasional cartoon I mean I love Peppa Pig but Peppa is always Peppa is the girl by the way for people who, who have never ever had the privilege of watching Peppa Pig Peppa's the girl her little brother George is the boy Peppa always she likes to dress as a princess and she likes to wave a magic wand and she has a pink bicycle helmet and George her little brother is obsessed with dinosaurs and whenever he's playing he creates dinosaur land with dinosaurs and volcanoes and trees it's tricky on the one hand it's my daughter's being conditioned at the age of two on the other hand what she naturally likes to do is to wear a nice dress play arts and crafts paint she's not really interested in riding her bike which obviously I've got her as well so I think it's very tricky I think I think all we can do is, I would say that I am a feminist. Um, I'm not sure if I'm a fourth wave feminist. I probably would just say I am a feminist. But I also think that I thought Jessica made a very good point about social media, about the egalitarian nature of feminism between those who are perhaps more um, educated, have more money, etc., and those aren't. I was taught by Mary Beard at university, so I follow her on Twitter. When she gets abuse, she gets abused as a woman, not just an intellectual, as an academic. People take her on about her academic ideas and her intellectual ideas. That's absolutely fine. But the abuse that she gets 
is very female-centered. She gets abused about the way she looks. She gets abused for being old. She gets abused for having gray hair. And also, she gets abused by women. And so I do think we also need, women also need to take a look at themselves and the language that we use just in the way that we say men have to as well. I just want to pick up on what Emily was saying about maternity leave and issues within the workplace as someone who's going on paternity leave uh, in, a, in a few months time. I'm particularly aware that at the moment, most men don't do this. They, most fathers don't take the paternity leave that they, that they are entitled to. Um, no, we've had you know, a real shift in terms of legislation in the past 20 years. So it was only in the, the early 2000s that, that men were even given two weeks, just two weeks off. Um, and now you can have a shared leave, but it's slightly complicated. You've got to ask for it. Employers don't necessarily have to do it. And most men don't do it. But I went back to work after three weeks originally after, after my son was born no one said to me oh god how how tough that must be for you to go back after three weeks yet if a mother goes back after six months people will say wow god six months but surely you'd want to stay with your child our expectations of men are so low when it comes to their children if a man changes a nappy he gets a round of applause it is astonishing how little we expect from them and so for example you know i'm i'm going to have in the first year of my son's life i'm going to have just over two months with him out of work and that compared to most people i know is huge and yet let's be honest that's nothing. It should be half and half. And we still have this problem in this country, even, you know, despite the progress that we've made over the past 20 years. And just to get back to the main point of this, why this is important is, quite aside from how a child is brought up, but if men have to take off, are expected to take off as much time as women, then women will face less discrimination when they're trying to get employed. Just finally on this, do you listen to the kind of agenda Steve's setting out there and do you feel optimistic? Do you think it will change or do you incline more towards where I think Emily was, which is some of this maybe is innate and is going to be much harder to shift? Um, I'm optimistic. Things do seem to be changing, but obviously the kind of social and cultural and psychological changes that we're talking about take a long time. It's not just it took a long time to change laws, but once it's changed, that's it. You know, it's not it's not like that with these issues. Um, so whether it'll change within my lifetime probably not but if it, is it slowly changing <laughs> and you're quite yes, young and I'm quite young <laughs> yeah but I think Steve's absolutely right to point out that we shouldn't just be asking why are women uh, making certain choices we also have to ask why are men making certain choices or not making certain choices because when we talk about gender inequality it's not just about women losing out men lose out as well um, men are losing out from spending time with their families and, and all of these kind of issues it's not just about sort of women it's it's about all of us now no country in the world has equal pay for men and women and until that happens the idea will persist that inequality is in some way the natural order of things from the perspective of Brexit Britain, a certain unease with diversity can sometimes seem to be another brute political fact. It's hard to think of a single developed democracy that has a pro-immigration consensus. Fortunately, however, Steve has come up with one. Now, tell us a bit then, Steve, about how the Canadian immigration system works. So they managed to do two things. First of all, they are compassionate. This is a country uh, that has accepted uh, 
more refugees per capita than most Western nations. Uh, they've done it in a very public way as well. Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, uh, said we're accepting 25,000 refugees. He even went to the airport to greet them as new Canadians, was photographed handing out winter coats. Yes, it was a photo op. But can you imagine many other uh, prime ministers or presidents doing that? Certainly not presidents to the south of Justin Trudeau anyway. So there is that aspect about it. Then it's also a pragmatic immigration policy. They do something which strikes me as very sensible. They look at how many immigrants they think the country needs, the economy needs. Uh, They work out uh, which parts of the country they're needed in. They work out which types of sectors they are needed in. And then they go and find them. So they set a target last year of 300,000 people to come into the country. To put that in perspective, that is just under 1% of the population, which is very, very similar to the figure of the number of people that came into the UK last year. So we talk about very similar figures. The the same sort of scale of immigration, but we're always trying to get it down, whereas they're keen to maintain it and possibly even increase it. Even increase it, yes. There are some economists um, who were commissioned by the uh, Canadian Finance Ministry who are saying actually uh, that number should go up to 450,000. Now, the reason why there's a difference in attitude, um, one is this is planned. There is a strategy. There are clear rules as to who can and can't come in. And that means that helps build popular support. So whereas in the UK, uh, we can't say it's planned because anyone from a EU country can come in. That has obviously reduced support here. The other is that Canada has embraced multiculturalism. It was once quite a racist society. Uh, In the 1960s, they changed their immigration law, which had uh, specified that you had to be white, which had had an, an, an ethnic tinge to it, and has changed that to allow it to be a more multiracial intake. It's not like here in the UK where it was sort of supported by New Labour in the 90s, but now everyone sort of stepped away from it somewhat. So there are those changes. The media is different. The media is pro-immigration, whereas obviously here in the UK, certainly not. And just so you don't think I'm giving Trudeau all the praise here, this is bipartisan. Mm. So the Conservative Party are pro-immigration. And even last year, they were the ones who pushed for... Uh, more than a thousand Yazidi girls and women to come into the country. Mm. Uh, it was them who who did it. There were no you know claims of like oh well the well of compassion has dried up and uh, well maybe we should have dental checks to see how old they were. They were like no 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 these people need our help. They need to come in. Emily, um, you write for the Sun, which has sometimes had a good deal of alarm about the speed of immigration. Do you think that the ideas Steve's talking about this mix of managing the thing properly making the argument and uh, the economic argument I mean and then also kind of thinking about um, how to foster a culture of multiculturalism do you think if that happened from the centre from the centre of government that could start to shift the centre of the UK debate as well? Perhaps. I mean, I was in Canada last autumn with the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, and I talked to a lot of Canadians about their kind of welcoming of the of Syrian refugees because it was, in my opinion, it was so different to uh, the UK policy. And I was very interested to talk to um, you know bus drivers, coach drivers, people in supermarkets and stuff that I met, and I was surprised that everybody was so warm. It wasn't just the politicians who were handing out coats at the airports, you know, metaphorically speaking. Also, Canadian people were 
very, very receptive to the idea, wanted to help, but also could see the benefits that refugees stroke, you know, migration could bring to Canada. Now, I think we have to bear in mind that the, the landmass in Canada is absolutely huge. The sense of population um, in contrast to what a big country Canada is, is quite small. The UK, on the other hand, we have almost, it's the almost the inverse. We have we're quite small island geographically and we have very large sense of population. And I am not sure necessarily that there is the political appetite either from the government or from the people, hoi polloi, so to speak, to do the same. I think that Canada is a very different country to the UK. And obviously, as Steve said, they have um, you know, a left of centre very charismatic prime minister they have the press are much more friendly to um, much more liberal press i'd say and indeed people on the ground were were very supportive of the measures i think in the last two years obviously with the brexit vote and with the general election earlier this year i think a lot of people feel disenfranchised and unfortunately for better or worse well definitely for worse in my opinion Migrants, economic migrants, nurses, doctors, people we need to run the NHS are lumped in with people who, um, with people who've come here illegally, be it from war zones, be it um, for whatever reason. And a lot of people in the UK blaming their ills, their lack of money in their pocket for those people that they see as stealing our jobs, inverted commas. You're clearly right that there's 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 a lot of resistance. But just on the particular point you mentioned about landmass. I thought that as well when I first read the article. But then I thought about Australia, which at the anti-immigration lobby are always talking about an Australian point-based system. It's just as big as Canada. It's just as empty as Canada. It is. Uh, one of the interesting things about Canada's size is that most of it is uh, uninhabitable. And actually, the vast majority of people live in this sort of string of cities and towns um, across the near the southern border. And when you look at the density of these cities, they are remarkably si- similar to the UK. So Montreal's density is almost exactly the same as Birmingham's. Uh, Toronto's is almost exactly the same as Manchester's. Vancouver's is... It, is just as dense as London. There are more similarities uh, than there are differences. The thing I think that um, the, the point that Emily just made there about sentiment within the country is interesting. And I think the fact that Canada actually has a managed system is able to say to people, look, we want, for example... 20,000 people to come in this year who are the parents or grandparents of current immigrants. And people go, okay, that's fine. And they say, yeah, we plan. want we want 51,000 people we can say are highly skilled. And people go, okay, that's fine. At the moment, there's no plan. I think if we had a plan for the UK, there might be more support. And Jess, finally on this, can I just ask you, you know, we're talking about the fourth wave feminism wanting to change the culture through discussion Here's something else where maybe there's a need to change the culture through discussion. Are you optimistic that that could be done? And if could it be done by the government? Steve writes about, you know, the Canadian government doing things in education and so on to foster multiculturalism. Do you think that's feasible? I mean, it's definitely true that um, the Internet and social media and so on, these are things that have enabled campaigns like this to take off. And it's exactly what enabled um, feminism and other social movements to take off. But it's very difficult to understand sometimes why some uh, of these movements really take off and really are drawn into the mainstream and why others aren't. I think 
particularly the problem with immigration is that it often involves talking on behalf of others. You know, with feminism, it's very clear we're here, we're all going to benefit from this. With immigration, you're kind of speaking on behalf of people who are not here. And there's a lot of people who feel like they're not going to benefit from this. So but, a note of caution. Yeah, no. <laughs> Britain's ready to embrace the caution. Canadian model. That's it for Headspace this month. Um, huge thanks to Emily, to Jessica and to Steve for joining me. The September edition of Prospect, which is in the shops from Thursday, August the 17th, features their full essays and more besides, including Tony Morrison on uh, America's stubborn race divide and Nick Cohen on giving up drink. You can pick it up in the shops, but even better if you've enjoyed the discussion, visit prospectmagazine.co.uk and hit subscribe. You know you want to. I'm Tom Clark. The producer was Chica Ears, with support from Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and we'll see you again next time. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.